the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with best-selling author Ed Welsh. He is a licensed psychologist and faculty member of the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. And uh, amongst the number of titles that he's written down through the years, his latest, Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Let's um, maybe kind of dive a little bit deeper into this topic, Ed, as we help folks understand sometimes the difference between what maybe can be good shame in letting us know, and maybe I'm not using the right phraseology here, but letting us know that there's something amiss in our lives that we need to address versus the kind of shame that's kind of brought upon us typically by circumstances that oftentimes are either outside of our control or, or, or had nothing to do with our own actions. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I guess I guess I tend to think about it this way. I think of of guilt has a bit more benefits than shame. <laughs> where where guilt, you know, our conscience can remind us, hey, I did wrong, and it's time for confession. Shame is it, it tends to be much more renegade, and and I I I don't find really that often in scripture. Occasionally you find it. Um, but, but very infrequently do you find in Scripture the encouragement for people to experience shame. There were times where Israel was just completely hard-hearted, and, and, and the Lord essentially says, shame on you. Uh, you, you, have, you have no shame anymore. But, but when, when, when I see the Lord dealing with individual people, especially when we race up to the New Testament and see Jesus in action, all we see is just this incredible compassion for those who wrestle with shame. So... So I, I think the scripture is much more interested in that question. Okay, here's this here's this soul deadening struggle that human beings can have. What is the way through it? Working through that is is a process, isn't it? And it's a process that can be different for everybody. And and I would imagine a lot of it comes down to flipping the the perspective in other words oftentimes that shame is based on how we perceive others and how they perceive us do we then have to kind of move beyond that to begin to see the way god perceives us yeah boy absolutely i, I think you, you just you just hit hit on something very important that 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 I, you know i want to learn of these things as we're speaking as well and and as, as we understand the way god works it's not, oh, oh, all of a sudden, in a half hour, we're going to be free of shame. It's, it's what we're, you know, what we're looking for is just maybe just a little glimmer, you know, just something that, 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 that approximates hope, okay? And just something that surprises us a little bit, where we say, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting our God, the holy God, to have this kind of concern for, for outcasts. That's, that's what we're looking for, just in, a, in one sense to be intrigued by a God who doesn't, who doesn't conform to our expectations. And, and one of the things you said when you talked about the phone lines being down is, is probably relevant to right now, too, where in a sense what, what the Lord says, I think, is, is, is listen, okay? Just, just sit down and, and listen. 
and which is so unusual for that that's surprising in and of itself for people who wrestle with shame they feel like they have to do something they have to wash themselves more they have to they have to somehow be a fail a, a success before they're able to to be able to appear before God and other people but but what you have in scripture is a god who says listen listen to listen to stories of people who experience shame and watch watch my affection for them and and then story after story in scripture that's that's what we receive you know what struck me so interesting going back to my my central example earlier on of this friend of mine who had grown up in you know less than ideal circumstances i i always took note of the fact ed that here was someone who because he was not a person of of great wealth or of status had a very easy time in showing a sense of compassion toward others. Mm. Uh, Here was someone who would volunteer during the holidays at a soup kitchen to help feed the needy during Thanksgiving and Christmas and so forth, um, who, even though he had limited means, uh, was someone who tithed frequently, was was eager to do something to help somebody else Mm. out who was in need. His, His own life experience gave him the ability to see need in others, and yet when he turned that mirror on himself, he saw someone that was a loser, who was worthless, who didn't feel comfortable going to certain events because he couldn't dress as nice as the others. It's amazing how there was a degree to which the shame taught him things about others that enabled him to become more understanding, more caring, more compassionate, and yet as much as it benefited him to a degree in that sense, mm-hmm. never benefited his own viewpoint of himself. But it's a, it's a good starting point, what you're saying, where, where, where people who struggle with shame, you know, it, maybe we could put it this way, an outcast can recognize other outcasts. Okay. They, they have keen eyes for other outcasts. And, and, and that seems to be the story of the New Testament, where here comes, here comes the king, and... And you know, he's, you know, his birth is announced with angels and prophecies, but but if you're an outcast and you start reading through the very beginning of the New Testament, what you say is, "Hold it, here's I recognize this guy. Okay, he doesn't belong either. He's on the outs as well. Here's a per. I recognize him. Is it possible that he might even recognize me? And and, and then the, the 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 greatest indignity. They go down to Egypt. It's now, you know, Egypt is just a horrifying thing for a Jew. That's, you know, that's where they were enslaved. And, and so he spends a, a couple early years in Egypt. You know, episode after episode, you look at, you look at the Messiah, and, and, and an outcast is able to spot Jesus better than anybody else because he is like them. And then, then, when, you, then when you watch his ministry take shape, it's, it, it's the most peculiar thing. I mean, if you want to have... A reputation, you go among the movers and the shakers and the influencers, and 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 Jesus was immediately on the outs, and he was on the outs with the movers and, sh- and shakers because here you, know, you remember that original complaint: Hey, he can't be one of us because he eats with sinners mm-hmm. and and tax collectors. He he eats with people who are on the outs. He eats with the unclean, which makes him unclean himself. And, and that was that was the original rap against Jesus that he associates himself with the outcast and and so you know to to use your friend as the illustration what we're you know what we're doing is okay you got it you recognize another outcast 
So watch him. Watch you know. Watch him walk through life. Now, now notice this. Do you see that that outcast, Jesus Christ, he makes a beeline toward you? Okay. And and most people who really wrestle with shame is sort of their full time job. They they don't believe it. And and I think well, you know, the, the scripture goes on and says, well, let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more stories, and let me tell you some more. But at some point, I think those who wrestle, wrestle with shame, they, they're going to have to do something. So in, in a sense, the Lord says, hear the stories, just listen. And then he says, okay, now respond. And, and the response can be as simple as, amen. Okay, Lord, I believe. <laughs> I believe you even pursue me as an outcast. I believe that you, and here's, here's a term that Scripture uses, you turn your face to me. And when somebody turns their face to you, it's this, it's this sign that you belong to them. It's a sign of their pleasure and their goodwill toward you. At some point, those who wrestle with shame, they're going to have to not only hear these beautiful words, but they're going to have to say, yes, I believe them. I believe that they're words that, that, that the Lord says to me. We're so comfortable sometimes living in kind of that pain because it's something that's very familiar, that sense of worthlessness and inferiority or living with rejection, humiliation, failure. And certainly a lot of people these days in light of what's transpired in the economy, uh, people who have worked hard at their career um, and achieved a modicum of success and then suddenly because of no fault of their own, lost a job, lost a home, have not been able to regain employment and they're walking around with that sense of shame. Let's talk about that angle when we come back. And turning about perspective on this topic, uh, seeing this as God sees us, seeing ourselves as God sees us, shame interrupted. Best-selling author Edward Welch with us today. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've got best-selling author with us today, Ed Welsh. His latest book is called Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. Got a number of best-selling books to his credit. He also serves as a licensed psychologist and faculty member at the notable Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Been dealing with this topic, and you know, if you're someone who walks around, who lives with, who is an intimate of shame, that sense of rejection and worthlessness and weakness, humiliation, failure. And boy, certainly that, that sense of failure, I think, is something that so many people these days, Ed, in the wake of what's been going on with the economic decline, have really had to struggle with. What kind of advice, what kind of insight can you offer to somebody who's, who's walking around with that kind of shame, lost the job, lost the house, they feel like they're a failure at caring for their family, and yet what do they do? Uh, there's... There's nothing unique to this particular era in how we measure who we are by how much we make. And 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 I don't live in the Bay Area, but but I would think that it would be only be more obvious in in the Bay Area. There's nothing unique to that because I think you found the same thing in the New Testament. And because the you know the poor they were they were the ones who were literally were worthless. Um, and you know that's that's you know prominent way we measure our worth what's our income what's the status of our job and and, and so i think there there are a couple of things that that scripture does with the the jesus does the the first thing is he says hey this is not a mirage it's not simply you love money so much and you love your reputation uh jesus is is acknowledging that poverty and and financial difficulties are truly hard thing 
and the hard things that, 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 that can be experienced shamefully before the community. And, and then you keep your eyes open in the scripture. And, and so here, Matthew chapter 5, for example, it's you know, one of, one of the, the early discourses that, that we have from Jesus. And here's how it starts. <laughs> yeah, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Now, now that's not going to make people out of a job feel really, you know, real, real nice all of a sudden. But it, it, it should capture our attention just a little bit, <laughs> where once again, it's as if it's as if Jesus is aiming for the outcast and the shamed. That's they are his people, and and so so it's very intentional that he starts out the beatitudes by saying, "Blessed are the poor." He's He's showing how things are not the way they seem, that those who are outcast, are, those are the people of the living God. They are the ones who belong ultimately to the king. And, and what does he say? I think that's the one where he says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven. And again, it's, you know, like you said earlier, this is a process. Um, and, and nobody's going to go away saying, oh, this is, okay, great, my shame is all done now, and I, I feel fine about not having work. It, it's is one of the big um, wedges, though, that we need to address here is to understand that in this process, ultimately, um, without regard to what the source might be of our shame, sometimes it's controllable, a lot of times it isn't, to ultimately understand that each and every one of us were bought with a price and that there is much that can be said about that, um, that ultimate and enormous Christ, uh, sacrifice that Christ paid for us uh, so that in and through that sacrifice, that 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 enormous pearl of great price, as Scripture says, uh, we can learn to 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 see our identity as He sees our identity, and be able to shed that sense of shame after a while. I, I think what we're saying is that we we tend to think that the work of Christ on the cross is for forgiveness of sins in the narrowest sense, but. But you know, here's the problem: you go into the courtroom, and and the judge says you're you're not guilty, and you're forgiven. And you leave the courtroom, and you still feel disgusting. Well, you know, in some ways, the the verdict doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You feel you still feel like a disgrace. I, I think what we're what we're what we're moving toward is what happened at the cross is much bigger than we will ever ever imagine. And and in in that forgiveness of sins, we have been given Christ Himself. And 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 and. And we and and here's shame is about associations. Are you associated with your poverty? Are you associated with the person who abused you? Uh, are you associated with your sins? Well, what what Jesus does at the cross is he is he snips all those old associations and he says you are you are now associated with me. And and so you know there's that, that wonderful passage in Peter. You are chosen. This is these are all words specifically to those who wrestle with shame. A chosen people, you're chosen, okay? A royal priesthood, you're rich. Uh, a holy nation, you're, 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 you're even more than clean, you're holy. And then that, that, that thing that Peter says, a people belonging to God, a people belonging to God. That's all part of the package of, of the gospel of Christ. The, the gospel is for our guilt and the gospel is for our shame. Isn't it interesting, too, I think of that passage, the people belonging to God, people that God calls having been set apart. So often we think of ourselves in the negative sense of having been set apart as being an outcast um, and so forth, and yet to understand that there is another type of being set apart, called by his name, paid for by his blood, 
where now all of a sudden we can understand that, that being somebody different than the rest can actually be something very special. It's, uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing the way the Scripture uses the same kind of words. Um, yeah, you're set apart. Now it's a set apart like you're, okay, you're on the traveling baseball team. <laughs> now you're set apart. You're, you're in this elite organization. Now you're set apart where you are absolute, You are the one who is known by name by the king. So, so it's a set apart, but it's a set apart that warms our soul and and says that we, you know, that here's here, here, this seems to be the very hub of scripture where where the Lord says to us in Christ, "I am yours and you are mine." We are pe- people belonging to God. That's what we're set apart for. Ultimately, Ed, the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. For those that have been eavesdropping on our conversation this afternoon that say, boy, you guys have really nailed it. You are articulating exactly where I'm at. How do I begin getting on this road to understand that I can go from that sense of being an outsider, an outcast, to understanding what it means to take on the mantle of being set apart in his name? How does that process begin? I, I hate to seem self-aggrandizing and, and, and talk about my own book, but but that shame interrupted book is it's, it's really looking at it's basically just looking at scripture, but looking at it through the question, what do I do with my shame, and, and just watching these beautiful words unfold. So, so so that you know that can be sort of a, a coach, a friend, if you will just to help people have eyes to see how Scripture does speak to shame over and over again. And, 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 and once, you, once you see it, once you're able to see those beautiful words, then you don't need the help as much, and you can just jump into Scripture and see them. But going back to, I think, what you said earlier, it's just allow that little, little nugget of hope to just settle in, okay? that, that maybe our God says things to our sense of disgrace and worthlessness, that is much more than we ever imagined before, just to have that hope. That's what a great place to start that would be. Indeed so. And, and hope is, I think, an, an internal and, incorp- and important word uh, that can be a central starting point of our focus. You know, when blame shows up on the doorstep, uh, we're having that sense of shame. Uh, we feel like we're worthless. We've been rejected. We're outcast. Um, to begin to incorporate God's viewpoint on who we are, uh, and to begin to see ourselves, not necessarily through how we perceive others see us, but rather how we should understand God sees us, is the important difference when it comes to shame interrupted. The new book, by the way, which, as we mentioned before, um, is uh, published by New Growth Press, and uh, you can get more information online at newgrowthpressbookstore.com or through any Bay Area bookstore. And our thanks to best-selling author Ed Welsh for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Clearly, events in the world demonstrate that evil exists in the world, but some are questioning now, well, if this be the case, then it clearly must be evidence that if God was so loving, he would not permit people to suffer evil of that sort. I mean, how can God allow this to happen to people that he claims to love? We'll talk tonight about some of the big myths concerning Christianity as we're joined by best-selling author Dr. Alex McFarland. He is a religion and culture expert, and uh, his new book is called The God You Thought You Knew, Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity. And Dr. McFarland, always a delight and an education to have you join us. 
Well, thank you so much. You're very gracious. It's an honor to be on. And uh, no doubt you're hearing much as what we're hearing from a lot of people around the country that are trying to struggle, they're trying to make sense of what we saw in these heinous attacks in Paris last week. 129 lives claimed. And some would simply look at this and say, well, look, um, this shows that evil not only exists in the world, but raises a big question. If God is so loving, as so many Christians try to claim that he is, uh, then he wouldn't allow this kind of evil to happen. He wouldn't allow this kind of a thing to befall people that he claims to love. Yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis dealt with this more than 50 years ago in his uh, very famous book, The Problem of Pain. Lewis said, you know, what if God made the world such that if an assassin fired a gun at a person, God made the physics uh, such that the bullet would turn to rubber and just bounce off? Um, and so people might try to perpetrate evil, but it would never be possible to happen. Uh, Lewis said, and I agree, you know, that's just not, not how things are. We, we have a free will, and we're moral agents, and the, the mere fact that God holds us accountable for what we do is proof that, you know, we, we uh, make moral choices, and we're, we're in a world of sin. It's a fallen world. Now, the solution to that problem is Jesus Christ, and that our sins can be forgiven through Christ, what he did on the cross, our lives, and even our desires can be changed by God's work in, our, in, in us. But um, the Paris attacks, sad as they are, are a, another reminder that there, there is moral evil in this world. You know, Craig, what, what makes it interesting is uh, really for 40 years since the sexual revolution of the 1970s and the skyrocket, skyrocketing divorce rate and uh, free sex, premarital sex, now the redefinition of marriage, basically the, the hedonistic track we've been on for 40 years has been sold to the culture based on the idea that there are no moral boundaries. I mean, there, there's no sin, there's nothing we're doing wrong, because there, there's no universal moral code. And yet, when something like this happens that clearly is evil, and we know it is, people cry, uh, this is immoral. Uh, and so our culture, you know, we can't have it both ways. Either there is a God that we answer to, and therefore we should live morally, or there's not a God that we answer to, and we are headed for anarchy. Um, clearly, we Christians, we know there is a God, and we want the whole world to know him. What about the argument, though, Dr. McFarland, that um, religion, and certainly I think demonstrably so in this case, religion is a major source of wars in the world, of evil in the world, and therefore people will be inclined to say this, therefore, is evidence to be sure that religion is evil. And, of course, they, they paint this with a very broad brushstroke. Uh, they do. They do. In fact, even last night, I'm on the road traveling, and I stopped to get, um, you know, put fuel in a rental car, and I was talking to the guy at the gas station, and he was saying, well, you know, we need to be rid of all religion because this is proof that religion is evil. Um, you, you know, Christianity clearly is different than, than the world's religions. Religion is based on man trying to work his way to God. Christianity, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, is the story of God coming from heaven to earth uh, to pay for our sins on the cross. Christianity 
um, says, love your neighbor. Christianity says that we are to forgive our enemies. Um, Islam, on the other hand, that, that really, since its uh, birthing in the 600s, has been a, a violent religion, uh, and there have been other totalitarian regimes and uh, all manner. It's almost like an endless list of the crazy ideologies that have driven people to do pathological things. Um, we, we've got to not only in our words show that Christianity is different, but in our lives. And, and, I, and I will say this, and I've, it's been my privilege to write on this extensively um, for the last 2,000 years. Show me where uh, hospitals are built. Show me where wells are dug to provide water. Show me where uh, orphans are cared for and the elderly and the infirm, where life is defended and the human condition improved. And I'll show you where Christianity is. Uh, look, look at America right now, the, the Syrian refugee issue, with um, something like 11 million uh, victims of the Syrian civil war over the last four years, and now 10,000 that uh, we're trying to figure out what to do with. And we can talk about the Syrian civil war if you want to, but here's the thing. Why is it that East is trying to come West? West is not trying to go East. It's because the West is built on a Judeo-Christian moral code. Um, in the West, we have cared for people uh, in times of crisis. In the West, we have... Uh, uh, welcomed the huddled masses with food, clothing, and shelter because the West was built on a Christian worldview that said, man is made in God's image, and when I'm honoring you, I'm honoring the one whose image you bear. Look, look, look at the, the Islamic world where life is cheap and one is rewarded uh, for bloodshed. That, that's not what the West, and certainly not what America was built on, and we must, to a new generation, remind people that uh, religion has spilled much blood, but the world is better for the Christian worldview that has said, love your neighbor and feed the hungry and forgive the oppressor. And so uh, all of this that we're seeing today, the world has become a powder keg. That's not proof that there is no God. It's proof that we need to return to the God we've abandoned. And certainly, I think, quite telling, as you point out, Dr. McFarland, that as we've seen this exodus uh, from uh, Syria in the wake of this civil war there, that overwhelmingly the largest number of refugees have all sought refuge in the Christian West, either in Western Europe or here in the United States. And isn't it ironic that if you take countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Dubai, United Arab Emirates, which are per capita significantly wealthier than even a country like the United States, that all of those very oil-rich, wealthy nations combined have welcomed less than half of the number of refugees that the United States alone has accepted. I think that's telling. We're going to take a time out. We're visiting today with Dr. Alex McFarland, exposing the 10 biggest myths about Christianity. We'll get back to some more examples as our conversation continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation, Dr. Alex McFarland, our guest tonight. He is a religion and culture expert, author of a new book called Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity, The God You Thought 
You Knew. That's the title of the book, by the way, the book newly published by Bethany House. You'll find it online at alexmcfarland.com or through the usual suspects, including Amazon. Let's talk about another big one. We often get this argument, and Richard Dawkins, I mean, at all, seem to hammer away the hardest at this, that Christianity and modern science today are completely incompatible, particularly when you look at this from the viewpoint of the origins of man. Mm-hmm. Yes, we get that a lot. Uh, but really, uh, what I always ask when, whenever I hear that is if somehow science has disproven God, I, I say, well, you know, which branch of the sciences are you speaking of, and uh, which scientific discovery because, you know, every branch of the sciences, you know, whether you're talking about one of the uh, branches of biology or chemistry or physics or forensic pathology, I mean, there are these sciences, and every, every uh, department of the, the sciences has its own, you know, playbook and methodologies. Um, which scientific discovery do you presume has, quote, disproven God? Uh, and, you know, in fact, the, the four basic forces of physics, um, you know, gravity and electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Uh, I was at a luncheon Saturday with a, a couple of very um, esteemed scientists who said, you know, we still really don't know why these things are as they are. Uh, why is the universe uh, structured to sustain life? And they call it the anthropic principle, why uh, the planet Earth, seems uniquely fine-tuned for human life. Uh, if anything, the discoveries of science point to the fact that there had to be an intelligent creator to not only uh, cause uh, the origin of matter and the creation of the universe, the beginning of the universe, but to fine-tune, to orchestrate the conditions such that life is possible. So. Uh, in no way has science disproven God. Uh, in fact, Craig, let me give you let me give you an example. Um, for instance, uh, evolution and most most science departments in American universities and many schools are operated from a com- completely naturalistic uh, presupposition that only the physical empirical world is, is is all there is. But evolution, for instance, which supposedly uh, you know, depends on gene mutations uh, to give all the varieties of life that we see. Uh, well, gene mutations can, uh, you know, rearrange the existing genetic material or cause loss of information, but a mutation doesn't add any new information to the genome. And if you want fins to become feathers and feathers to become fingers, you have to introduce new information to the genome, which we've never observed mutations doing. So uh, naturalism, and specifically uh, Darwinian evolution, is, is really a faith position because it's not observable. It never has been. Well, this, in fact, of course, is one of the significant scientific shortcomings of all of this, that oftentimes we've heard uh, these glowing reports of the evidence they find of the uh, the evolutionary chain down through the centuries or millennia, and then we come to more recent recorded time where we have not only a very accurate fossil record, um, we have other records up to including photographic evidence going back over the course of 100, 150 years, and yet there's, there's no demonstrative 
effective uh, continued evidence for this evolutionary process, which makes you wonder is if all the evolution took place at the front end and on the backside here, there's nothing that doesn't make sense. It, it, it's not logical from the standpoint of it seems as if then this, this, uh, this ability of, of, of the world of creation, on the wrong term, I guess, for the evolutionists, uh, of the Big Bang to continue to evolve itself seems somehow gotten stuck. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, we learn about the Cambrian explosion, that life appears in the fossil record fully formed. It was my privilege a year ago to spend 11 days in the Grand Canyon, and we saw many, many fossils, uh, including a fossilized um, log, uh, the, the main structure of a tree that was probably 25, 30 feet long, fossilized through, quote, millions of years of strata. That uh, And by the way, I believe the fossil record is the result of the flood. L- let me just say this. I, I definitely do believe in a global flood. I think the topography of the land and the, the Earth's geologic um, structure and makeup um, looks like uh, a worldwide flood, and the fossils were created through uh, rapid burial in the mud, the water, the silt, and intense pressure. But all of the fossils are always complete, fully formed uh, organisms. Uh, The Cambrian explosion, life appears fully formed. Uh, And any of the so-called transitional forms that ostensibly were one species morphing into another, uh, fragments of teeth, fragments of bone, this huge inference that that I believe is imposed over um, uh, fragments that have been found and you know, it's, it's funny how, you know, entire creatures and villages have been constructed out of just some little fragments here and there. And there, there's wild disagreement uh, and just much speculation about what this or that thing might have been. So the question is, has there ever been uh, empirical, verified proof of evolution? And the answer is no. What, what's interesting is 156 years into Darwinism now, you know, because uh, uh, by the way, I've got I've got Origin of the Species and Descent of Man. I've got a second edition, Descent of Man, and I've got a, um, a sixth edition of Origin of the Species. That in in only twenty years after its first publication, it had been through six or seven printings, very influential. And basically, what we've had for a century and a half uh, have been voices like Richard Dawkins that just insist Darwinism is a fact. Uh, to dare question it is, is ignorance or arrogance. Uh, but the evidence is not there. It's like Jerry Maguire, show me the money. You know, well, show me the evidence, and the evidence is, is just not there. Well, moreover, I mean, not only do we find this, this what appears to be, as you're suggesting, this, 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 this jump in the fossil record that probably requires a greater degree of faith to accept all of that than it does to simply look at uh, the biblical Genesis account of the origins of man, uh, then, too, I've always found it quite curious, and I have yet to have a humanist scientist be able to give me a solid answer for this, other short of than just a lot of gobbledygook, when I pose the question. So if we want to prescribe to the Big Bang Theory that suggests that at one point uh, this big explosion took place that created all matter, and you're telling me that out of this then, out of chaos came organization. 
Why is it there's only one record, according to what you're telling me, of that ever happening? When is the last time you read a story where somebody blew something up and out of it came a building or a bridge? Uh, or a road was suddenly constructed once they've dynamited some rocks with a with TNT. The fact of the matter is, there's 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 no account everywhere anywhere of destruction of chaos creating organization. Uh, that's a great point, Craig. I mean, we have never seen chaos be the mother of order. Something else that is, I mean, I know this is getting rather philosophical, and frankly, I appreciate the chance to talk this way, but. Uh, we've never observed uh, inanimate matter developing consciousness. Let's just say somehow there was a primordial soup, and we don't know where it came from or how it got there. And let's let's just say somehow some uh, proteins and amino acids uh, evolved and life somehow began. How did consciousness develop? Because, you know, right now if I say 2 plus 2 and everybody thinks, okay, 4, all right, your, your brain, with all of the neurons and synapses, there's the physical tissue that is your brain, but the thoughts that you're thinking and the reasoning, uh, that's not the same as the tissue. So there's, it's what um, scholars call the mind-body problem. We have a body, and even if by some you know, happenstance that evolved, what is the origin of consciousness? A Richard Dawkins, a materialist, has no answer for the origin of consciousness, and then how did um, what we call individuation, how did multiple centers of consciousness develop? Because, you know, you're Craig Roberts, you're thinking your thoughts, I'm Alex McFarlane, I'm somebody different. Uh, there's no, there's no, from an evolutionary standpoint, there's no accounting for uh, consciousness, mind, uh, intelligence, personality. Um, it, it's been said that man is a soulish creature. We're, we're, we're in an evolutionary mindset, just a, a, a moist robot. But we're, but we're not that. There is, there's something that is the real us beyond just the physical tissue. Sure, and not only in terms of personality, but things like you're suggesting, like individual choice. I mean, uh, is it conceivable for the bacterium flagellum just to one day wake up and say, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. I think I'm going to go do something differently. Well, it just <laughs> the reality is there's never any evidence anywhere for that ever happening. And you're right, it, 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 for, for Stephen Hawkins, um, uh, Richard Dawkins, it provides a, a tremendous quandary, doesn't it? Well, it really does, and I'm glad you bring up the bacterial flagellum because uh, uh, there's what um, like Michael Behe uh, calls irreducible complexity, that you've got um, a, a motor, a shaft, a propeller, uh, basically bushings, and, and all of these things at an infinitesimally small level in, in the cell, uh, the bacteria has a... a propeller-like tail that can spin at 100,000 rotations per minute and then reverse direction in, in a fraction of a second. And if even one of the parts were not there, uh, it, it would not be functional. So how did uh, this irreducibly complex, it's like a mousetrap, seven parts in a mousetrap. If you have even one of the parts missing, it's inoperable. So how did these parts evolve in the absence of the other, because see, all of the parts are interdependent. 
how did they evolve in the absence of the other? Well, I've had debates and dialogues, and, and some of the hardcore evolutionists will say, well, it's an enigma. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Then you are a person of faith. Um, if, if you're willing, all of the things that, you know, when, when your naturalistic worldview hits a wall and can go no farther, they'll say, well, it's an enigma. Okay, well, good for you. Uh, you certainly do have a lot of faith. Because we've never we've never seen something come from nothing. We've never observed uh, chaos bring order. Uh, we've never observed inanimate matter develop consciousness. We've never observed information come from uh, a non-intelligent source, and the DNA is information. So my my point in this is it's much more plausible uh, when we look at something like the Big Bang. And scholars wonder what was before the, the Big Bang. You know, there was an infinitely dense bit of matter and energy, and it exploded outward in all directions. Uh, well, what, whatever was before the Big Bang that caused the universe, it had to be beyond time, it had to be immaterial, it had to be all-powerful, it had to have uh, in, at least intelligence, because there's so much order and structure in the universe, um, Many have said it, it has to be something uh, analogous to a super-intelligence. Well, when they talk about what was before the universe that was the cause of this great big effect, they're giving the attributes of God. And we say, okay, Big Bang, great. We know who the banger was. Yeah, I, I at one time listened to one of these debates amongst a couple of these uh, scientists going on and on. And uh, after a while, having headed down that very same road, I thought to myself, if this man would just take a moment and take two steps backwards, he'd realize that his attempt to try and explain away how man came to be is actually providing further evidence for the existence of what he calls, uh, you know, something that's the, the enigma, and we would put, we would assign to that definition as uh, what we know today as God. Our thanks to Dr. Alex McFarland, some great insights, a wonderful book, one that I think you'll certainly uh, learn about, uh, learn from, and uh, also use it a wonderful tool in sharing your faith with others. The God You Thought You Knew, Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths about Christianity. Newly published by Bethany House. And again, you can get uh, information on the web at alexmcfarland.com or order it online through amazon.com. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.